0: Welcome to Embargo, intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade. I'm one of your hosts, Tim O'Toole, and with me is my friend, colleague, and co-host for today, Doug Jacobson. Doug, welcome. Thanks very much, Tim. Good to be here. Good. Good to have you. Good, good, well, good, good, to, be, good to be back. That's true. And so. you did you did promise to come back, and now you're keeping your promise in the new year. Um, and it's good to have you. So, so today, we are going to talk... All about last year. We're going to and we're going to do that in the export controls context. And so, I think what we'll do is we'll talk about some of the big developments. Uh, in in some of in, in both BIS and ITAR, um, you know some of their big announcements, some of their enforcement cases, and then we'll we'll kind of move to some country-specific developments. So, um, a little bit about the special export controls restrictions with respect to Russia, and a little bit about the topic that we talked about last year, um, the supercomputer rules. So we'll go through a little bit of that again because they were obviously so important, and you know now couple months in uh we might have some more some more observations to make about those about how they're actually playing
1: out and still dealing still dealing with it every day exactly exactly me too
0: and i i I think in some ways it's gotten a little bit more um it's a little bit more concrete than when we talked the last time in terms of, I, I think, obviously, this rule was designed to go uh, to, to deal with supercomputers and super chips, But I- at least I've run into issues, and I'm sure you have too, where there might be some products that um, might not fall within those categories, might be a little bit lower level that have been swept in or potentially by the rule. So we'll get to that at the end. Um, so, so let's start with uh, some of the big events in 2022, and I wanted to first start with uh, Matt Axelrod's June 30th, 2022 uh, memo. It, it was an enforcement, it, administrative enforcement memo from BIS. It actually got a lot of uh, publicity when it came out. And the, the topic that got a lot of publicity, I, I would say, the most publicity, the main thing that I'd heard about it, to be honest, until I ran into it in one of my cases, was this uh, provision that talks about, and the way that it's headlined in the memo, is elimination of no admit, no deny settlements. And I, the way that has been reported, and I think some of the you know, the publications that I have seen that have kind of described it have talked about admissions of liability and 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 obviously that is potentially very dangerous. Um, if you are a corporation and you face potential shareholder lawsuits where you would actually need you'd be admitting liability. And so if a shareholder sued you, they'd actually start with this admission of liability and it would make it easier to sue when you dig through the fine print. Uh, It is. It is. There's no requirement that there be an admission of liability. It does say that the company has to or the person has to quote admit their conduct, and that is a little bit different. So, so what I'll throw out to you is, Doug, Mm kind of how do you feel about this part of the uh, of the new enforcement memo? And have you had it come up? And you know, do you see it as a big change or kind of a a more of a um, rhetorical change from BIS.
1: So just to um, the background, the, the level set, I think for people who may not be dealing with this every day is that there is a new sheriff in town. So you have a new administration, which has now been on the ground for two years, but really only in 20 last year, for the most part, Um, was able to kind of either get confirmed and then now starting to put their own stamp on the agency. And this was part of that. Um, There was also a similar policy change as it relates to enforcement for anti-boycott issues, which we can also talk about. Um, And then the other point is that BIS has been... Relatively slow when it comes to settlements, um, negotiations, and final settlements of pending cases. So, as as we all know that you know from the point of an investigation, from the point of a charging letter or um, proposed charging letter, getting to a charging letter, um, then the company with counsel and BIS negotiating. potential settlement that process takes a long time and it can take several years um, for those of us who who deal with this on a regular basis and i think i'm always careful to advise my clients that this is going to be a long process Um, which in many cases the clients don't really are not concerned about as much as long as the end result is hopefully a lower penalty as a result of those Right. drawn out negotiations. So in terms of whether um, we're going to see, we haven't seen, I haven't dealt with this too often because there just, there haven't been as, you know, there's only been, this is only not even six months ago um, and it's affecting, um, um, it's, and it's also a little bit unclear as to which cases it's going to apply to. Um, I think that's, a, that's a, a bit of a question. Although I will
0: say, I mean, I've had some experience with this now at this point, and they are, there is some question, in my was some question from the memo in my mind as to whether it would be retroactive. Is this for cases where they're just where they haven't started enforcement? Is this for cases where the conduct comes after the date of the memo? But at least in my experience, if they haven't settled it, then it's covered by this policy.
1: Yeah, and I, I would agree there as well. Um, now, when it comes to your specific point about the admission of of conduct, I think it's much more of a semantic change than a real practical change because the prior settlement agreements, even though you could sign it and you are not admitting um, liability per se, the facts were stated there. And it was crystal clear as to, In great in great detail, in detail not only in the um, in not only in the final settlement but also in the order yep. and they also they also provide they attach as a you know in every agreement they also put in a copy of the proposed charging letter yep. which includes each of the counts which includes a very detailed paragraph of the activity of the alleged activity. So I think that when it comes to advising a client as to whether that's going to make a material difference in terms of their uh, either their um, a, ability to agree to admit to that liability, or this is something we, sh- we should talk about voluntary disclosures in a second, because that's kind of goes in hand in hand with this. Um, but I don't think it's really a material change from the company's perspective um, or an individual, if, if that's the case. I do agree with your point that you mentioned that this could change the equation with respect to shareholder lawsuits where a company is admitting to something, but you're right, they are admitting to conduct. But if you are signing a settlement agreement that sets forth the facts, you are admitting those facts and agreeing to those facts Anyway.
0: Right. I mean, that's what I, I don't see as much of a change is the sense that, like, okay, so I get it. If you're bringing a lawsuit and you're plaintiff's as counsel, um, now you'll be able to say, well, you admitted to those facts and those facts were admitted by the company. But before, you had what I think any lawyer who's you know, an advocate would say was at least a tacit admission because they recited Ah. all these facts and you signed the statement and you paid a bunch of money and you didn't sit there and say, no, none of these facts are true. We object completely to all the facts. And you weren't allowed to say that because you wouldn't have been able to do the settlement. And so from a plaintiff's lawyer's perspective, I would think that that would be so close to the same thing as to really not be
1: much of a difference. Yeah. And these cases are all made public. And so they're, um, and I think when it comes, I'm not a shareholder liability expert by any means in terms of, you know, but I do think that when it comes to um, a shareholder action, um, I mean, most of these cases in terms of. The monetary penalty amount. I mean, unless it's going to be a very large case, like a Weatherford or Schlumberger or, or the like, when you have a publicly traded company involved, um, I don't think it's number one. These cases typically are not material, right? Um, to and 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 to to a uh and number two, companies if they are publicly traded, they are going to um, they they are going to Um, as a general rule, particularly on a very large potential penalty, they are going to set aside funds in terms of an escrow um, to be able to pay for that. So it's not going to typically decrease shareholder value. It's not going to decrease share price. um, And therefore, I'm not sure really whether there would be much room for uh, a, um, a shareholder plaintiff's attorney to really um, use this as a hook versus what it would be today.
0: Yeah, I I, I think so too. I think it strikes me as, you know, it it certainly makes rhetorical sense. But as a practical matter, these seem like you're admitting to the conduct already. They're just expressly making you do it. And I'm not, I'm not a shareholders, you know, lawsuit expert either. So I can't say for sure that it is not going to make a difference. But my sense as someone who kind of has done some litigation, both on the civil side and on the criminal side, is that I can't see the fact that, you know, you signed a settlement agreement, put your name to it with all of these facts in it but you didn't say, I admit these facts are true, but you paid your penalty and you didn't object is very different th- it, than a situation where you do exactly the same thing, except for you say, I admit these facts are true. I'm not sure it's gonna save much from the, the lawsuit that eventually results, but
1: could be wrong. And one, and one final point on that is that the memo does say that you only have to admit liability to get the mitigation credit right? to redu- reduce penalty. what it says so you could if a company did really was reluctant to admit the conduct um they could roll the dice and they can say well we're not going to admit and we will um use the prior language that bis has used for years and years and that at the expense of possibly a higher penalty so that would be I, i would be surprised if a company decided to do that but we as counsel can give the company the option.
0: Yeah, and I'd be curious to see what BIS did it, to a company that came in and said that because the fact is they say, you know, when we enter a settlement we're giving you a reduced penalty. So, you know, they're not saying what that is. And to, so they're saying to earn that reduced penalty. So I guess the if you you would get no credit and they would put the settlement or the penalty up to the maximum, but you could not admit liability, I guess, but I'm not sure I could even see that scenario arising. Um, I did want to quickly go to the three other things that are in this memo, because it was basically a, we're going to get tougher on export enforcement memo. And they talked about four policy changes. The first one is significantly higher penalties. And and as we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, at least there's been no time to see that happening yet. But one thing that in that section was, um, it was interesting to me and that is that they say they're going to start calling cases egregious more often and that that one i i actually think could make some difference because i am not thinking of any off the top of my head but i know when i read through both bis and ofac settlements that i am sometimes puzzled between the diff- or it, it, in, in trying to figure out the difference between an egregious case and a non-egregious case because the egregious cases seem few and far between, and the non-egregious cases are are pretty common, even when the conduct, when you look at it from the outside, looks pretty similar to some of the egregious cases. And so I'll be curious to see how that plays out.
1: Well, I'm concerned about that. I am concerned about the impact of higher penalties, um, how that will play out. As you say, time will tell. The other thing that I am very concerned about is also that the egregious, OFAC is inconsistent when it comes to egregious. 100%. Um, My view is kind of, I I look at the term egregious is that I can define it, I know it when I see it. And I can have a pretty good reaction based upon the facts as to whether it's egregious or not. But we were involved in a recent, relatively recent OFAC case, where OFAC felt the conduct to be egregious, and we strenuously um, disagreed and pushed back, we in fact did a whole analysis. We got some law clerks to do a summary. We pulled all of the egregious cases that OFAC has, um, you know, has um, issued, which you know, there's not a lot, but. Um, and, and we compared those facts of those cases to our case and we tried to get OFAC to, um, to change their mind on that. And, and it was not successful. Um, yeah, it, it was just, dis- it was disappointing actually.
0: Well, I mean, I, th- that brings up two points. I mean, and just to level set here a little bit. Um, for folks who don't do this work a lot, when you're dealing with the enforcement guidelines for both OFAC and for BIS, they have a few factors that they really look at in coming up with a presumptive penalty. And one is whether there was a voluntary disclosure, and the other factor generally is whether or not the case is egregious. So egregious or non-egregious is a is a critical factor, uh, and and. Both at OFAC and BIS, I think it's fair to say that very, very few cases go into the egregious bucket. But I've seen some cases go into the egregious bucket that are like Doug says, they don't look egregious to me. And then I've seen other cases that don't go into the egregious bucket that have like management culpability and potentially even willfulness and large number of transactions and last over a long period of time and they find non egregious. And so it really is hard for me to put put my finger on when a case is egregious and when it's not egregious, I usually feel like I know it when I see it too, but there are some cases that I see it and OFAC doesn't and other cases where I don't see it and they do. So I, I feel like, I feel like maybe I,
1: I don't know when I see it, even though I think I do. Yeah. I I would just say it is ultimately subjective and that's, I, I think that's problematic for, for those of us, you know, who, you're trying to get consistency and that's and fairness in terms of all across all the cases, and you know in the mitigation guidelines and their enforcement guidelines are trying to achieve that with the with the factors and, and using what David Mills had done at OFA at BIS, trying to use the OFAC model and trying to come up with um, consistency and predictability, uh, but doesn't always work that way.
0: So let's move on to the two other ones because I think we can go through those quickly. And they're, they're, they're kind of similar. So essentially, they're going to start having – and OFAC does this as well. They're going to have non-monetary res- – resolutions public resolutions for what they view as less serious violations so essentially uh, ofac calls these finding of violations right. uh, I'm not sure if if BIS I don't think that that secretary Axelrod used a particular t- that particular term but I, I assume that's basically what this will be is a public resolution without a penalty what do you think of that
1: uh, I'm You know, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, OFAC, as long as it's used sparingly. I mean, again, OFAC uses uses, uh, finding of violations um, relatively rare um, when they're trying to make a point. But when it comes to our clients, if they can have a finding of a violation with zero penalty compared to a penalty, then they're going to take that option every day. Yeah,
0: I I tend to agree. I mean, I I do think that the the one thing about it that is a little bit weird is that you you're usually talking about conduct that would result in a warning letter. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't because they're trying to make a point. And from the client's perspective, if there's no penalty, the client usually isn't going to care that much. But it does turn a non-public resolution that, that you know, nobody ever finds out about unless they go through a pretty laborious FOIA process into a public resolution that where the company essentially is found to have violated, um, you know, the, 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 either the sanctions or the export controls laws uh, and and it's it, for conduct you know that was the same as everybody else did that got a warning letter but it was it just happened to be in an area where mm-hmm. the it, the enforcement agency thought that it could make a point so I do think that seems kind of random although I've run into it in my practice and I'm sure you have in yours and it's just kind of being in the wrong place at the wrong time but it does make a point and it sure is a lot better than getting a penalty
1: Well, the one thing that I think is different amongst this, with this policy and OFAC, and we'll see how it plays out, is it does give um, BIS the option of um, other remedies, um, such as as, um, uh, enhancements to compliance program, maybe an audit, um, suspend the denial order. um, And so it gives them more flexibility. Now OFAC does not mandate those other requirements, in a finding of violation, they don't say, "Well, as contingent condition, you're going to have to, um, you know, hire a third-party audit or go undergo an audit for two years, or you know, obviously, or we're going to add you to the SDN list um, if you can, if you if you violate uh, within the next two years or something like that." So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, but that does give them some additional options.
0: Yeah, and and I, I I'll be curious to see if OFAC follows suit because because I. Do you think that makes sense? I mean, if you're going to find a violation, even if you don't impose a penalty, uh, you normally, when there's a violation, there's remediation. I mean, even in the warning letter and no action context, uh, I assume you know, at least in my practice, generally when we are when we are writing our you know final disclosure where we are you know begging for a no action letter or a warning letter, we're talking about the sorts of remediation that are Potentially on the hook here in the form of an order. So it does seem a little odd that there's no ordered remediation when they find a violation because you've usually promised to do this sort of stuff anyway as part of your final disclosure.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, DDTC does that um, uh, behind the scenes. Yep. So they're not going to, um, if they have a directed disclosure or a voluntary self disclosure, they will often ask a company to um under undergo an audit for example um or and that's all but that's all done behind the scenes and of course the consent agreements are are, are few and far between
0: and it's not ordered i mean there is a difference Ah. it's voluntary and and in the same sense that when you do a voluntary disclosure and you're talking about why you ought to get certain credit and you're talking about the remediation measures those are all voluntary now if you promise to do them and then you don't do them, you can get in right. a lot of trouble. But, but so they're not voluntary in that sense, but they certainly aren't, you know, imposed by the agency.
1: Although although DDTC is pretty aggressive because they will threaten um, companies on not allowing them to obtain licenses. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, and that, and, and that is one, you know, that is the one area where you know I- of enforcement practice that is so different from say the criminal context because here your enforcer is also your regulator and if you're a big company that does a lot of exports you are going to come to the same agency that's in- doing the enforcement for licensing and for you know in the ITAR context for registration and for all sorts of other potential interactions that you're gonna have in terms of you know your the export side of your practice and so The ability to kind of, um, you know, be aggressive in an enforcement context in in advocating for your client's best interests is a lot more tempered in this area because you also have to, the the regulator has so many different things that they are able to do after any settlement takes place that it's just much different than negotiating with DOJ, where DOJ is just like, this is probably, hopefully, going to be the only time that you ever come into contact with DOJ and after the the enforcement action is done, you hope you never see them again. And there is a reasonable possibility that that will be your only contact with DOJ. But, but for our clients, they're gonna have many, many repeat contacts with DDTC and with BIS even if they never have a violation again which is also unlikely. Yeah. So
1: well it'll be interesting because Matt Axelrod does come from DOJ so there is that DOJ hat. He's going to yep. he's not going to forget that and uh Kenler not that she's involved on the on the enforcement side but she's also from from DOJ and we've seen um you know we've it, it's not um we we we've seen some um assistant secretaries in BIS coming from DOJ. We've seen that at OFAC as well. And but everybody has their own, um, you know, um, concerns. And and I think that let's talk about the VSDs because that's big. That's been my biggest concern about this 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 new change in policy. And I want to
0: I want to hear that because in some sense I, I look at that optimistically, but I want to hear what you
1: have to say. So the policy that was um, in in Assistant Secretary Axelrod's um, June memo. That went out to the enforcement people is we call they she's going to call it a dual track system, where basically they're going to try to fast track kind of the low hanging fruit. So people who who are not familiar with this, when you submit a VSD to BIS, um, it used to go to the field office. Um, Now it's basically sent to a mailbox in Washington. Washington logs it. It then um, is then distributed um eventually to the um to the field offices but what before they're sending these to the field offices they are triaging them and they're basically putting them into two file two file the folders or pi- piles you got a stack of paper here you got a stack here here's the the bad vsds and here are the, the 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 one-offs um which is doesn't you know here are the ones involving china iran and russia and here's the one involving spain um or, or Germany, and and they're and you have two violations here, and you have 20 over here, and they're going to put be put into various different categories. So the idea is to try to um, quickly um, handle and deal with the VSDs in the lower uh, lower hanging fruit category, um, possibly with a warning letter, without even having to go to to uh, the field offices. Uh, the others are going to go to the field offices. And then they're going to be staffed out to an agent, as well as a. This is the big difference, as well as an attorney from chief counsel. Um, this is big. So as it says, in the most serious cases, um, you know, um, NSD, NSD, sign well. a a and, and possibly even an NSD attorney. Yeah, which I that. a little. I, I I think that's would be. Uh, I mean, only in the most egregious, potentially criminal cases that they're going to want to refer to DOJ anyway, um, you know, um, so that I, I, I hope and assume that would be relatively rare, but in terms of uh, the VSD, t- 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 this dual tracking, if you will, I, I'm okay with that process because yes, I kind of know it when I see it as well, when I'm advising a client, right. I can tell a client um, the first question, as we all know, what's the first question a client asks? is this going to lead to a penalty? Right. What am I looking and at? I, and, and what, yeah, in your world, what, what, <laughs> how many years am I looking at? Exactly. Um, and, and so you're in your former world as well. And, and exactly. so, and so, um, and I, I, I kind of, it's the same thing where right? I kind of, I live from experience and I can know it when I see it and I can, and based upon BIS has been pretty predictable over the, over the years. Um, and so here's my biggest concern, though. I am concerned that if VSDs turn into penalty cases, then, and that, and we have a um, a discernible increase in the statistics, I am concerned that that will have a chilling effect on vsds and is counterproductive to the agency's goals in the long run right and and that i mean that gets back to your point about you know the the
0: the folks kind of importing a doj model into an agency practice i mean on the one hand we kind of need to be more um restrained in dealing with the agencies because our clients are repeat players and the agencies have lots of different things that they can do to our clients outside of the enforcement context. On the other hand, at least as I understand it, the VSD programs, particularly with the agencies, are kind of based on a partnership, based on an assumption that a functioning compliance program is going to still have violations and perhaps even more violations because you're looking more closely and you you are paying more attention and these laws are very complex and so they're probably going to, there's certainly going to be violations maybe the more, the better compliance program there are more and if you're encouraging people to tell the agencies about them, that's only going to work if the agencies respond in a way that is just as understanding as with the clients that's not the criminal enforcement model, I mean when a criminal prosecutor gets involved, their job is not to essentially have a partnership with the defendant on the other side Uh and so so like it it is a little bit this you know i i hear what they're saying in this memo about you know ramping up penalties and making sure that the bad actors don't get a you know a a competitive advantage in the market because they're not paying the same compliance compliance costs that the good actors are paying and they're doing deals that the good actors wouldn't do fair point but you know to your point uh, it is it is going to be tough to to get people to come in and disclose on themselves if then they're looking at a much it, they're if they're not getting much of a discount or much credit for doing it if if basically the the reward for disclosing on yourself is the same penalty that you would have gotten if they had found out about it without your disclosure most companies are going to take their chances and that's not to say that they're not law abiding, it's just you're supposed to get credit, and if you aren't getting credit, then it's not in the company's best interest to disclose because the chances of of a regulator finding violations on its own are way way less than they are if
1: you tell them about it. No, e- exactly, and I and even if you have a VSD where a company gets credit because the cause you get that should get a you know a, I mean, not you know starting point of Fifty percent. Even if you get a reduced penalty, most companies want to have no penalty. So that's really the fundamental difference. And this comes to what I refer to as the personalities of each of the enforcement, regulatory enforcement agencies. OFAC has a different personality from on enforcement matters, as from BIS, and BIS has a very different personality from DDTC. And these personalities are very important because it leads to its track records, and those of us who deal with these agencies on a regular basis that gives us as counselors an ability to provide our clients with guidance on on how they should act. Um, So, DDTC has been very successful in training. The big defense contractors to disclose almost everything, and because they want to use the partnership model that that you mentioned, and it is a partnership, and only when there's going to be a huge number of violations, or there's going to be a recidivist, which we see many of the of the of the more recent cases, or hundreds of violations, as we've seen in some of the cases, um, or really truly egregious. Um, Will DDTC lead to a consent agreement, but they will work with the companies to try to get them back into compliance in a behind the scenes method rather than making it publicly public through a a penalty case. So I'm concerned that um, now this did happen in the 90s, um, uh, that there was an uptick at BIS um, of voluntary self-disclosures that did lead to civil penalty cases. And word got around amongst the, 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 the companies and the bar. And it did lead to fewer disclosures from my experience, because ultimately we as counsel, outside counsel, all we can do is to give management and leadership the, the facts and the pros and cons and ultimately it's a business decision. And this is the problem. Business people make business decisions based upon risk. And if there's a higher perceived risk of a disclosure and that they're going to, and there's very little risk that this issue will be brought or found by the agency, then what are they gonna do? Possibly choose not to disclose. Which, which you know,
0: to be fair to the companies, and even to be fair to the agencies, I mean, that is part of the model. Like, it is a voluntary disclosure; it's not a mandatory disclosure. And so, exactly. the the agencies say this program is premised on the idea: if you tell us, you will get considerable leniency. If that doesn't work, the company actually it's obligated to its shareholders to act in the company's best interest. And so, if what they know is the risk of disclosing is vastly higher than the risks of not. Not disclosing who would ever disclose I mean you could you could arguably be subject again not my field of expertise but subject to a shareholder lawsuit for that as well because if you're just disclosing knowing that the penalties are going to be substantially higher than than or in the risk is going to be substantially higher to the company than for not disclosing how can that be an interest uh, decisions that's made in the best interest of the company so it's it, it, you know, I guess regulators beware the, the tougher you get on particularly on voluntary disclosures, the less likely it is you're you're going to see those
1: in the future. So time will tell. So stay tuned.
0: All right. So we've, we've gone through the first half hour on topic one. So I think we're going to have to go to the lightning round for the rest of these. Um, so let's, let's turn to, uh, another development in 2022, another major development in 2022. And that came in at the tail end of the year when DDTC came out with an, it's ITAR compliance program guidelines. And, um, I, I, we won't go through those in any great detail, uh, other than to say that uh, you know, the DDTC's compliance guidelines come on the heels of OFAC's, I think they called it a compliance framework, and BIS has some compliance guidelines. Doug, what do you think is kind of new and exciting, if anything, about these new compliance guidelines from DDTC? Nothing. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's my view too. I mean, it's, it, well, it, it, it's good that they have them. But it,
1: there's nothing that
0: I saw there that I was like, "Oh my goodness!" I, 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 don't, I don't want to. I don't want
1: to discount them per se because it went from four pages to sixty-three pages. Yes. So there's more paper and there's more words, um, or more virtual paper, and there's and there's more words. Um, I do think it's a good idea that DDTC did do this. I would say that the vast majority of compliant companies um, were already implementing most of this based upon their experience um, with other agencies. Um, and also, if you recall, um, this is now, um, um, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's now a little bit, for many people don't even remember this, but this will, to pull this off of your dust shelf, um, do you remember the Nunn Wolfowitz report? So the Nun wolfowitz Task Force Report on Best Practices, which was issued in um, uh, uh, 2000. Um, so now it's hard to believe that makes me 23 old. years 23, ago. almost 23 years ago. <laughs> that was as a result of an enforcement case brought against TALIS. And one of the things that TALIS did as part of their uh, mitigation efforts was they commissioned um, this non Wolfowitz, Sam Non, former senator yep. from Georgia, Paul Wolfowitz, who became the head of the World Bank and was, you know, had been in the defense industry before that. Um, and this, the the um, um, it, it's worth looking at. It's eighty-five pages, and 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 so um, you should. That was the gold standard, and and I've used that for years before. Um, as a part of an ITAR compliance um, program um, when I'm implementing one for a client. And then I took um, BIS's compliance program guidelines or export management control program, which they've had for many years. Um, So if you look at what DDTC did, it's not earth shattering, it's more meat on the bone, if you will, for the other elements of what they've done in the past. Um, but these basic elements, the eight elements, um, you know, Nunn Wolfowitz had 10 elements. Uh, OFAC has their own number of elements. But the bottom line is that they're essentially the same. Number one, management commitment. And then, you know, record keeping and, and training and the like. So there's nothing right. really um, earth shattering about this other than now they can, can point, they can point to this and say, hey, we want our regulated companies to make sure that they're aware of that.
0: Yeah, it's a good compendium of what a compliance program ought to do and it's got some exactly. meat on the bone but it is a lot like all the other agencies because good it, as a practical matter good compliance programs all have the same structural elements but really it's the people who are running them that determine whether or not they succeed or fail
1: right and, and it does have some unique aspects obviously that are ddtc unique such as registration such yep. as T- taas and other agreements you know those are things that you don't see at other agencies. So yeah. so you have to obviously um they've mentioned those in there. And I again anybody who's in an ITAR regulated company should look at this. I'm Absolutely. not discounting and, it. And
0: no no and for our friends at DDTC, clearly a lot of work went into this. And so Correct. it's a nice job, but it's not it's not something that when you read it you think, oh my goodness, DDTC is going off on an uncharted route in terms of compliance yeah. requirements. So
1: all right. But so I, I, I would I, I would just recommend people taking a look at the non the non Wolfowitz task force uh, report that you can find. Um, it's uh, it was dated July twenty fifth two thousand, um, and I've used that as my model for when I do external audits. You know before. Yeah. No.
0: It's it's actually very good and very detailed. Until this, it was really the thing. You, I mean, because the other one was four pages from DDTC, you had to look elsewhere to kind of get a compliance framework in the ITAR context. Uh, All right, so let's let's move on to enforcement. And I think, to me, what was most notable about enforcement, both at BIS and at DDTC in 2022, is the lack of any big or or, or even very many enforcement cases. what do you think about that? And then I guess we can talk quickly about the enforces ca- enforcement cases that
1: did take place. Well, a couple things. I mean, there are a number of cases in the pipeline at uh, all the agencies. Yes. Um, so we can't discount that. Uh, I do think COVID has still, um, uh, people still aren't, you know, BIS people aren't going into the office that often. Um, depends on the agency, but still, there's still work from home. Things are just not normal as they were prior pre-COVID. So that's that's part of it. Also, a change in leadership. Um, there has been turnover um, at uh, BIS in terms of of not the Office of Export Enforcement, but certainly in in um, in leadership. Um, there's been a change at uh, at OFAC. Um, over the last couple of years in terms of both both sides of the house um, on compliance and enforcement. And, and so I think that there is, are certainly many things in the pipeline. So that, that's what led to kind of a decrease, I would say, for certainly in 2022 on the number of cases. Um, DDTC is always a few cases per year. 2022 was actually only four cases. Three against individuals in a unique area of defense services, and then one against a small company in California. But I do know that there are some still there are stuff in the pipeline, um, so we're we're still going to see those types of cases. So you know, DDT's always been um, the the fewest of of the, the enforcement cases.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it strikes me as it's not quite a random blip because I think I, I agree with you that. COVID and the the change in administrations made a difference. Um, And I think our next topic, when we start talking a a little bit about Russia, also made a difference, because that was really where a lot of the enforcement priorities were. But, But since the invasion really only started in February 2022, it's really, you know, it's not surprising that there haven't been enforcement cases that have made their way to, to big cases. It's kind of like sometimes when you look at the OFAC or the BIS enforcement stats and they'll have one gigantic case one year and then smaller cases other years and you'll say, well, the average year was you know an $8 billion penalty, but that's because there was a $16 billion penalty and then basically no yeah. others. So, So I think it's just a matter of kind of randomness of timing and then some of these other factors that we've talked about. We'll yeah, I,
1: I, I look at I don't look at the averages. I look at the number of cases brought more yep. so than the penalty amounts, because that when, you know, OFAC's numbers from the mid 2000s was skewed by the big bank cases. Right, right,
0: right. All right. Well, so let's move on from. to to some more country-specific export controls developments in 2022. And with that, I I think you you have to start with Russia. And so why don't you talk a little bit, Doug, about some of the new export controls restrictions that went into place. If you want to talk about the licensing requirements, I'll talk a little bit about the luxury goods requirements.
1: So when it comes to Russia, um, you have to think about a couple things. Number one is that, Yes, there. Are, since the beginning of March, more or less, um, after BIS rolled out the, the first rounds of, of changes, there have been significant increases in the number of products, certainly since um, basically anything on the CCL now requires a license to Russia. But you also have to weigh that against the number of companies who have pulled out of Russia. So that really has dramatically decreased the number of licenses that my clients and that way I think generally BIS is seeing. Um, Certainly there been, we've been dealing a lot with oil and gas companies who are still either winding down or still trying to get items in. And certainly a large number of oil and gas items were added on the various supplements um, even if they are EAR-99, for example. So the other, so that's one big factor. Um, so I don't, there aren't a lot of, BIS is spending a lot more time on China licenses than they are on Russia licenses. And, you know, the, and the licensing policies are, are challenging to overcome them in most cases, unless it's really going to be used by a, um, a country um a, you know, country group, a country um, or for a subsidiary of a US company who's still operating from there. I mean, that's the challenges in Russia are numerous and that we don't, you can talk about that all day. Um, In terms of Russia, the biggest thing that I've been seeing is aircraft related issues. So that's been the biggest challenge, certainly for um, aircraft parts and components for safety of flight. Um, but OFAC isn't all that interested in, in um, licensing aircraft parts or components for aircraft that were leased and were not returned to the lessors, and that represents a big, big um, number, and that's been a big, big, big issue, and and that's going to um, I've been dealing with that. That's going to go on with litigation for for the next. Two or three decades in terms of 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 the fallout from insurance claims and all these aircraft that were are now sitting in Russia on the ground. In most cases, some are still flying, um, maybe not for very much longer. But that's been the big big issue. Um, the the re- The revocation of, of license exception AVS was huge, um, and yeah. we've seen that from the enforcement side as well. Um, that we don't we we. But that's been. Um, so that's been the biggest, those are the big kind of biggest sectors, oil and gas and, and aviation in terms of Russia.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I will say from my perspective, most of the clients that I've worked with have pulled out.
1: Um, there have
0: been issues with respect to the um with respect to divestment that have have actually come up in the export control side mostly because if you're pulling out but you're transferring anything in your office to to the, the new buyer it is an in-country tra- transfer and if there's anything subject to the EAR that's on the CCL you do have potential licensing issues although um, the 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 clients that I've had have had very few items that are subject to the EAR as part of the transfer, and my advice to them has been to destroy any items so that it is EAR 99 on your way out. And since there have been so few, um, that is generally the way that clients have resolved that issue is to essentially disable the items so that they become EAR 99 and don't require a license to transfer in country, But it, which is You know, I've I've had a number of clients that have said, you're you're telling me what your advice is to break this with a sledgehammer. And I'm, yep, yep, that is that is state of the art export controls advice. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And and I think, you know, the other big change was this luxury goods requirement. And if for companies that, uh, you know make and potentially sell luxury goods or did potentially make and sell luxury goods to Russia that were EAR99 that's really the only big change is that there is this licensing requirement and there's a you know a long uh list supplement uh 5 to to 746.10 um is is you know, has a lot of EAR-99 items on it. So it's not just items that are on the CCL that now have licensing requirements if you're in the luxury goods area. And the other thing that's interesting about that and has been difficult for compliance terms is that it doesn't just apply to exports to Russia. It ex- it applies to export to Russians even when right. they're out of Russia. And so that has kind of been a compliance nightmare. Um, but, you know, still uh, not something that has come up a ton because I think that you have, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that anybody who's making goods that are on the luxury good list is actually trying to do anything in Russia. And so it's really just the compliance concerns for the out of Russia sales that are, you know, still giving people fits.
1: So from, an, from we were just focusing on BIS, but I think from a, the OFAC side of the house, um, by contrast, there's a large number of license applications. Yes. um, And that relates primarily to blocked funds. Yep. So that's, I've been dealing all the time with license applications for for blocked funds, for payments that were blocked by the US correspondent banks um, um, after the large Russian banks, you know, over 2022, starting in February and then um, expanding. then and then there's been um, you know the the large US commercial banks because of de-risking and other reasons are very very cautious and they're going to they're going to if there's any doubt um, particularly on the 50% rule what are they going to do they're going to block report ask questions later and then it's up to the beneficiary or the remitter of the funds to have to figure out how they're going to get their money back and this has been a problem so there's tons of OFAC licenses um, that are in the pipeline and this takes a long time. OFAC is very, very slow. Yeah. um, And that's a big, big issue on the, on the OFAC side.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, so it is kind of the, the, perfect storm from the OFAC perspective, because on the one hand, my experience was that every financial institution in the world after February 2022 was giving incredible scrutiny to every transaction that even potentially touched Russia and was erring on the side of blocking. And so you have a you have kind of this really aggressive compliance function in the financial institutions over wow. compliance beyond anything that I've seen before. And then on the other hand, you know, when the clients have the blocked funds and they come to you and say, "Well, how do I get this unblocked?" and you see a case that looks like they're really sh- the funds really shouldn't have been blocked, you still have to tell the client, "Okay, we're going to put this together. We're going to go to OFAC. How long is it going to take?" You know, a long time. What's a long time? You know, are we talking a few days? Are we talking a few months? And it's like, no, it could be a few years. Like it is, it is a, it's really an unpleasant conversation to have that I've been having a lot because you know the 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 timeframes for OFAC are really measured in years generally and not months. I've, I've had you know, and I'm sure you've had at least as many, if not more. But I, I've had some cases where where they've gone pretty quickly and gotten to the right result, but I have to say, usually it takes a lot longer.
1: They're measured in dog years. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, so I, 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 I always I, I say months. It's you got it's months. Yes, it's, I say months.
0: That's I. I do say months, and and I and I it, and that that can be fair, but I I think years. You know, are, it could be. It could. It be could, it could, it
1: could. be. Yeah. I mean, I, I got a I got a license. Um, I mean, things can pendent no affect can can stick. Now, I have to say that. Uh, Brad Smith, who's uh, um, you know deputy director of OFAC, he has been very focused on metrics, and he has to give him credit; he's done a very good job of trying to get licensing, um, trying to to get uh, pending cases done faster. But just the volume of cases with yeah, Russia and I, other countries, it's just it's very challenging.
0: Right. I mean, for our friends at OFAC, that is not a criticism. We know you are overwhelmed with license applications and that they are very complicated and can take a long time. But it does from the outside when you have to deal with clients who you know expect to hear that a licensing decision will take days or weeks. Um, to try and set expectations can be very challenging. In that, in
1: that and I've tried, to, I've tried to get OFAC in many cases where we're dealing with a large number of block transactions for some commercial banks. I'm trying to get OFAC to think out of the box, which is not always easy. And I've tried to get them to try to do bat bulk licenses um, rather than like payment by payment. Why don't you do 10 at a time or do 20 at a time or do, um, you know, for this one particular bank, um, you know, you can do a, an, add a spread, attach a spreadsheet like BIS does for items. Um, so the 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 light, the one, the transaction by transaction approach,
0: yeah,
1: like in the normal world is okay, but in the in the current world is highly problematic. And I can I they can be much more efficient um, if they kind of revisited their licensing strategy in many cases
0: agreed agreed and and also the duration of some of the licenses because you know if they made them last longer then you'd Definitely. have to renew less frequently but um Question for another day. So let's move on. I, I do want to talk about two more things quickly because we're we're running up on an hour, and I think we want to try and end it there. So the first thing, quickly, you've already talked about it quite a bit, Doug, in terms of the the crisis that's that's brewing with respect to um, replacement parts for airplanes in in Russia. Um, and I think you're exactly right that it strikes me that BIS and OFAC are not inclined to to grant those sort of, sorts of licenses. But I say crisis because Those planes are still flying, and so at some point, something bad could pretty easily happen um, as that goes along. The other part about the the aircraft that has come up um, and I've, I, you may have seen it before. I'd never really seen an aggressive use of General Prohibition 10 like has occurred in the context of Russian aircraft. You mentioned that AVS was withdrawn for flights to Russia, which means that every flight to Russia that doesn't have a license and has a U.S. origin aircraft, which are most aircraft, because many of the engines are are U.S. origin, and the engines are usually more than 25% of the value of the planes. So you. Have have all of these flights going into Russia and none of them are authorized. And so they're an export to Russia without a license. BIS has taken the position that once that happens, that anybody who that that everyone is now on notice that the plane is the product of an export controls violation, and so nothing can happen with respect to any of those planes, and they become, according to the the BIS, and now according to uh, the U.S. attorney, I think there's a, a pending forfeiture action in, in SDNY. Sure. They become subject to, to forfeiture, they become subject to seizure, The anyone who provides parts to the plane or even provides services to the plane is potentially at risk for a General Prohibition 10 violation. I did want to mention that because I've, just, I, I've not seen such an aggressive use of General Prohibition 10, and I'm wondering if this is where it's going to be limited to
1: or whether we're going to see
0: it more broadly.
1: Well, it was really the perfect way to use General Prohibition 10, although I would say that... Um, OFAC's guidance is extremely broad, and we're trying to get clarity on certain aspects. Um, and it ha- the, that type of guidance is not always easy to get. Um, so for example, one of the issues I was dealing with is in terms of, of because it does, if you look at the OFAC guidance, it talks about pro- prohibition on financing, um, well, does that mean if you have a lease payment, can a, a lessor still get a payment for the leased aircraft? Um, and, and, and that's been an interesting challenge, yeah. um, you know, because it's not an OFAC issue necessarily, um, if all the parties are not, no SDNs involved. Um, so there are lots of interesting challenges there. Um, I do certainly think that, um, for aircraft owned by Russians that may not be even just, um, you know, general aviation aircraft, Gulf Streams, um, and Bombardiers and other things that certainly that are owned by Russian nationals, um, the these aircraft companies, because they have, um, you know, FBO fixed base operations and maintenance uh, operations in Europe, uh, they're very careful. And they will um, basically, if they see any sense, any Russian connection, um, they're probably not going to um, do it without an opinion from counsel or authorization from the agency. Um, I do agree that Um, It will be interesting to see if there's some sort of crash, unfortunately, in Russia, Um, and they're going to blame the U.S. government, you know, for not licensing things. Um, And we've seen that in Iran. Yep. So, but in the Iran context, um, you know, those were historically, historical aircrafts (coughs) that were, you know, owned by uh, Iran Air, for example. These are aircraft that are owned by Europeans or Americans, um you know through i through through irish and other leasing companies and so this is a a big big problem and it'll be interesting to see but there's no shortage of issues in that area yep yep
0: yeah and and i do think that you know this becomes complicated on the u.s side because uh you know the worry for all of the aircraft is that they're going to be used for the military so so it is the, the 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 point of the sanctions is to deter Russia from engaging in a military conflict, and aircraft have obvious military uses, and so you you really do see um, the, the US side on that and where they're coming from. On the other hand, if planes start falling out of the sky, um, and it's because the planes haven't been able to get replacement parts, uh, it, it is not going to be good from a public relations standpoint, I think. Um, we'll see what happens. So, so we've only got a couple of minutes left, and we do want to kind of close with the what we did an entire podcast on a few months ago and that is the the new rules that came out in October of 2022 with respect to supercomputers and superchips and and really we're all focused on the PRC and trying to deter both manufacturing of those items in the PRC and keeping that technology from being exported to or used in the PRC. What are you seeing now, Doug, with respect to a few months out? like are the, are the same are you seeing the same issues you saw in October? or are you seeing have they evolved?
1: So we're now three months into it, hard to believe because that was um, issued on October 7th. Um, wasn't published until uh, October 13th. Uh, but <laughs> most of it was effective October 7th. So it's hard to believe it's been three months. I can tell you literally every day since then, I have dealt with a China, I call it the advanced supercomputing rule or advanced computing rule, um, dealing with an issue for a wide variety of clients on that issue. Um, I will put this into um, several, I think over time, um, you could look at it. The first month was disbelief, The second month was understanding and trying to understand. And the third month was acceptance. So now we're in the acceptance (laughs) and we're in the acceptance phase of things. And now we're in the kind of, now we're in the, all right, we have to comply. How are we going to comply? So my big takeaway from the rules are, number one, um, it's still my original view. It's not as big as uh, some people thought it was. It does affect some companies more than others, uh, but it's still advanced in supercomputing and hardware driven uh, in in, in the integrated circuit, semiconductor manufacturing space. So I'm not discounting that. That's one takeaway. The second takeaway is it is important to do due diligence and how do you do? How do you do, do? You do due diligence is through in-use statements. So we've seen a proliferation of in-use and in-user statements that companies are being asked to sign, or are asking their customers to sign, that their customers these items are not going to be used in the production development of advanced and supercomputers in China. The only way a company can protect themselves is by getting one of these statements. So. We are seeing that, but they should be ter- they should be ter- narrowly crafted. Um, you should push back if you get one that's highly. I've seen some really bad ones, even for for some big companies that I think that were um, I think didn't reflect an, a good understanding of the overall scheme of the rules. So you can certainly, if you're asked to sign one. Um, ask questions and push back to the extent you can. Um, and if you are preparing one, you know, talk to counsel who to who understands the rule. Um, and then the third aspect is the US person issue. Yeah. Um, so OFAC did issue some FAQs, um, the first round of FAQs for the advanced supercomputing rule right before the end of November, right before the US Thanksgiving holiday. Um, they tried to be helpful. There were some very positive aspects of that. Um, like what's the definition of a semiconductor manufacturing facility? That was very useful. Um, but on the U.S. person part of it, I think that they didn't, they weren't successful. Um, this has been, in my opinion, the most, um, I mean, it's not the most significant because it only affects
0: U.S. Persons, US, in US China. persons
1: in China or outside of the U.S. Right. Um, but it it is confusing and it was initially viewed as being akin to an OFAC facilitation prohibition by US persons and i think OFAC tried to um, to tried in that FAQ to try to limit it to what they were really focusing on which was the shipping and the um, uh, the supplying and the approval of shipments and not covering lawyers who are US persons, right. um, you know, in, in Europe or in China, uh, or a, um, you know, they're focusing on, on servicing was another one of the prohibition. So I think that there, there's still a lot to be clarified. And and, and I've done a lot of, of, I've talked to OFAC about it. And I've done a lot of guidance to clients on the limitation. But, you know, I was dealing with some executives who are US persons for Chinese companies. and I, like, hey, I had do I have- as well. Do I have to, do I have to resign? And I'm like, well, what is your role in the company? Um, you know, generally speaking, the higher the role in the company, the less that they are going to be doing one of these um, activities that are the prohibited activities. Right. Um, and it's not as broad as, as OFAC facilitation. So that's a key point. And I think now we're, we're into the um, acceptance and um phase of of things and i think people are you know the it, it's it's all being kind of the dust is now settling on on and people are, are accepting it
0: yeah i that's been my experience too the one thing that i would add to that is that for especially for non us companies that are that have either plants in china or have been doing work in china or have been working from europe you know supplying to china it, they they one, have a lot more items subject to the EAR than they realized, and two, they have no idea what the classification is for the most part. And because of the, some of the rules actually apply to items, item, items subject to the EAR, and then if they're used in the production of certain I- items to make products that fall within certain categories usually for the supercomputers or super chip right. categories those ECCNs it becomes it becomes very complex to work with those clients because they're really having to learn a whole new language because even though they had items that were subject to the EAR and their supply chain they weren't paying nearly enough attention to them because you know they basically saw that there was no license required to ship to China and that was about it and now they're much more focused on these sorts of issues and exactly what's going on
1: on the ground in China. So that that's exactly right. I mean, the point about the foreign direct product rule cannot be stated how important it is. So number one, people have to realize and get, there are now, there are now eight <laughs> different foreign direct product rules. So when the foreign direct product rule applied to Huawei only, that was manageable because companies may not be selling to Huawei. Or they can get a license for non 5G. The second part now is because of the new rule. The advanced, now you have it, it, it added footnote four, um, those new companies that are subject to the foreign direct product rule, and then now the advanced and supercomputing foreign direct product rule. So the foreign direct product rules are, are another aspect of, of the overall, depending on your client base. Um, and what if you're a non-U.S. company you are and you're in the integrated circuit space. Um, you know, I wrote an eight page memo to a company recently in Europe about analyzing their impact, the impact of the foreign direct product rule on their on their business. Now, I think ultimately in the in the, it's not going to be immediately, but if companies can't use U.S. equipment and U.S. software, they're going to find other sources. Right. Right.
0: No, I, I agree, and I think that we that may be where we leave it is, and it'll be a topic for the next for the next episode of Embargoed or the next time you come back when we can talk more about this rule and some others. Um, is if the U.S. It, it, there is going to be a scenario in which where the U.S. rules are so much more strict, but the technology is not restricted to the U.S. that European co- co- European companies and other companies
1: are going to fill the breach. Absolutely. And, and also indigenous development in China. Right. um, Of of, of their own technologies. Right.
0: Well that, and this might speed it up ironically because now the Chinese may be forced to to do things where they'd been relying on the U S previously, but we'll, we'll see how that plays out.
1: All right. That's the final word.
0: Well, we got a lot, we covered a lot of topics in a short period of time. We did. So
1: always, always, always fun. And there's certainly no shortage of issues and, uh, we can, uh, it's nice kind of doing this periodically and then we can kind of see where we were and then see where we we're going. Uh, but certainly my takeaway is that, um, this is the golden era of sanctions and export control. There, old lawyers and consultants. Uh, there's <laughs> certainly no shortage of issues for us to deal with and, uh, they're not going away anytime soon.
0: Excellent. Well, that's the final word and thank you, Doug, for coming on the podcast and, um, See you until next time. Okay. Until next time. Stay sanctions free.
1: Produced by HeartCast Media.